0: Okay, well, um, it's good to be with you and be able to look into uh, our second week of studying and preparing for Christmas. You know, I was thinking this week, if I had the opportunity to sit down with you, I bet you could give me one of your favorite Christmas uh, memories, some special Christmas. Goofy enough as it is, I would have one of the BB gun ones, because that happened to me as a kid. But that really wasn't the most memorable Christmas story for me. Mine happened in 1987. And uh, in 1987, we were all pumped as a family uh, to go and be with my parents for Christmas Day. My mother had been in the hospital for three months. She got released for Christmas Day, and we were just really, really excited. Five o'clock Christmas Day morning, we get a call, though, and that she was taken by squad back to the hospital. And so we spent all day, Christmas Day, Christmas night, in the ICU of Lima Memorial Hospital. And I just remember thinking, man, all the things we were looking forward to, you know, we just couldn't wait together as a family, dashed. And I remember specifically standing, looking out the window uh, window over Lima, Ohio, and seeing Christmas lights and all these decorations and just saying this, is this all there is to Christmas? And then the Spirit of God reminded me it was one year earlier that I'd became a Christian. I'd given my life to Christ. And I was reminded that You know, Christmas wasn't about all the things that I was so looking forward to. It was about something much more important. And so the gospel just turned my heart around, and I moved from this sad, gloomy, rotten-feeling guy to just a celebration in the midst of some pretty bad experiences that day. For many people, Christmas can bring a lot of different emotions, right? I mean, You might have good memories, you might have some tough memories. But for me, that was a turning point in how I celebrate Christmas each year. Christmas, if it's only about traditions, you set yourself up for a crash. You know, the crazy uncle comes and ruins the celebration... Or you don't get your favorite food or your favorite gift or something else happens. And if tradition is only about what you can get and celebrating the way you want, you set yourself up for some disappointments. I mean, just think of uh, the world we live in. It sends some real confusing messages about Christmas, right? I was watching the news this week and they're doing the man on the street thing, interviewing people and asking them, Uh, What's the meaning of Christmas? I was shocked. Not one person, I don't know what they edited out, but not one person got the story right. Not one. You know, could a person think that if they purchase more things and spend more money at Christmas, uh, they're going to really be happy and find Christmas joy? Or, you know, if you get the Audi car with the big red bow, you know, yeah, that's a Merry Christmas for a while, maybe. But but think about it. All the symbols, all the things at Christmas that can distract us, and they're not bad, they're fun celebration things, but they can become traditions. Even the Christmas story can become a tradition that distracts us at Christmas. So I want to lead us this morning into discovering why A true understanding of Christmas brings uh, clarity out of times of confusion during Christmas uh, sometimes in our life. See, Christmas is far more than tradition, and don't get me wrong. We have our fair share of them in our home, which includes lots of eating and those kind of things. But if they're removed, if the gospel's at the center, I still rejoice. And so the way we move from confusion to clarity is found in the gospel at Christmas. And when the Gospel's at the center, you and I understand the greatness of the Christmas story because it reveals our helpless state and God's great, great solution. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says as God inspired him to write this. Chapter 1. Traditions are nice, but Jesus has to remain at the center of our Christmas celebration, just like we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 1. So in our passage this week, if uh, we're not careful, it could be full of some pretty confusing pieces, which we'll read in a moment. I, I mean, I doubt that you or I could have dreamed up a way for the Savior of the world to come, the way it happened, right? I doubt you could have thought this one up on your own. I couldn't have. The Savior, the King, will come to the world through an obscure couple, in an obscure place, in a really strange way. And so the real issue for us today is, who is this Jesus that we sing about at Christmas? You see, you must get Jesus right or you're going to get all of the Christmas story wrong. Let me say it again. You must get Jesus right or you will get all of the Christmas story wrong. And so, for generations, man has wrestled and battled to try and limit this description of who Jesus is. Uh, we have said uh, or read that people say he's simply a good person, he is simply a prophet. But while he was those things, he was so much more. Jesus self-described himself in John fourteen six as the way, the truth, and the life. And in 1 Timothy 2, 6, we read that there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So today we're going to be looking at Matthew 1, 18 through 25. If you want to open there in your Bibles, or look on your iPhones or iPads or whatever you have to read along, we'll go there in a moment. But it picks up on the verses that uh, were read last week, looking at the lineage of Jesus. By the way, I'm so glad Ronnie took that week. I couldn't have gotten half the names right. But central to the Christian story we're going to learn this morning is the virgin conception of Jesus, which is confusing, right? It probably brings some questions to mind for you. And and throughout history and even in our modern day, men dispute or deny the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. For anyone who does not understand the gospel, this is pretty much understandable because they're blinded to understanding the truth, But the key this morning that I want you to kind of take note of is this. If you remove the virgin conception of Jesus, you remove the hope of the gospel. And you're left with more confusion. And so the virgin conception brings clarity in the midst of confusion. If you remove the virgin conception, you deny the inerrancy of scripture. You you remove the virgin conception, you have an incomplete Bible Bible. And you have an incomplete gospel. And you have a history of Christianity that is wrong, and we still wait for a Savior. The early church fathers thought this was so important to stress that some of the creeds, if you're familiar with them, the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed, were determined and intentional about saying that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. They wanted clarity. They wanted us to have certainty. And so every passage of Scripture is directly connected to the gospel. And as we read the passage today, it's the gospel that it's at the center, it's the foundation, and the Virgin Conception is the central piece for us this morning. You must stop for a minute though and think. There are a lot of debates, you will say, during Christmas. And businesses and people uh, remove saying Merry Christmas, and we're tempted or challenged to make sure we kind of set the Christmas piece aside. And I understand that. They want to make money, they don't want to offend people. I don't want to get on my high horse because there's red cups and they don't say Merry Christmas. I don't really care about that. I would expect someone who's not professing to be a Christian to say Merry Christmas. But for you and I, and assuming you're here this morning because God has at least pricked your heart into interest this morning about Jesus, to remove Christ from Christmas would be like trying to watch Frosty the Snowman on TV without a snowman. Think about it, right? There's no storyline. You could even sing the song, blank, blank, the blank, was a happy, jolly soul, what? it wouldn't make sense. So our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Read along with me if you would, please. <clears throat> now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way: when his mother in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. but he knew her not until, he had given, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I want to look at these verses quickly this morning before I draw some implications for us. And the first thing I want you to note is what happens or what is stated in verse 18. <clears throat> you know, I noticed as I read this week, this very first line caught my attention. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place this way. Isn't it interesting? Matthew took great time to write this as God spoke to him. The birth of Jesus took place this way. And then he lays it out. He didn't want any confusion to come into how this happened with Jesus. There's a very direct, definitive statement Matthew, writing primarily to Jewish believers, says, here's how Jesus comes into the world. And so this morning, for you and I who believe the Bible is inerrant, which it is, you don't need to read and question the verses that come much, do we? He said, here's how it happens. And then, in connection with that as well, uh, we see the reason for the Christmas story and the virgin conception laid out in the verses that would follow. I want you to notice who would be born and the reason he came. The name Jesus is used. This is how the birth of Jesus took place. Jesus, meaning Jehovah God, is salvation. That's the meaning of the name. Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah. So we have the proclamation of Jesus And then we will see the reason for his coming. Before that, though, we read of uh, this young couple who was betrothed. A strange word for us today. In those days, marriage was kind of a three-step process. You had the engagement, which was arranged by parents. Then they were betrothed, which was a legal binding agreement, which meant that in order for that to even be broken, there would have to be a divorce, Legally, even though they did not live together and they did not stay together until they were uh, married, and so you've got uh, this couple that's betrothed, and uh, she finds out she's pregnant, and an angel tells her so. Strange, right? And then you're the father Joseph, who's told that your betrothed wife is pregnant, and you got to think what. This guy cheated on me, right? This is not right. And so he says he's a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he decides he will divorce her. But then an angel shows up in his life and says, Don't fear, this child is from God. And it happened through the Holy Spirit. Guys, that's a strange story, right? I mean... If you're Joseph, if you're Mary, the questions abound through this. But I want you to notice both of their actions. Here's two young people that were betrothed, that were not royalty, that were not famous or chosen by God because they were of some kind of status. But they believed when God told them to do something. Joseph believes an angel. Mary believes an angel. There's faith and belief in how they lived and reacted. And so there's affirmation for you and I in this story, even looking at their life of how they believed and followed God. And then a little bit further, in verse 23, we have this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Six hundred years Before Matthew writes, the prophet Isaiah wrote this. And so I think this is one of the ways God assures Joseph that this is true. That you can rely on what the angel is telling you. It's written in his word. When I look at both Mary and Joseph, I see they're more concerned with following and believing God than their own reputations. So they're faithful and obedient, and they believe. And what an example for us. So to move from confusion to clarity, though, how are we going to answer some of these questions that you might have? And what's this story teach us about God and the gospel? Why did God bring about salvation this way? Was it really necessary to do it the way God did We'll again look closely as we look at verse 18, verse 21, and verse 23. The names that are used directly connect to salvation. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, son of God, who is the Messiah. God is salvation. Jesus, in verse 21, anon, meaning Jehovah, is salvation. Because he will save his people from their sins. God alone is the one that can bring salvation. Verse 23, Emmanuel, God with us. Why would God decide to enter the creation which he created, intimately connect with people who have rebelled and at most times have no interest in him at all, to live as one of us, setting aside his right to live in perfect harmony with the Trinity, to become man, to live as a person who had no earthly benefits, and to eventually die the most cruel death possible. That's the question, isn't it? Why? Why would God do that? I mean, why would God choose two people in this remote area of the world to be the most famous parents in the world? Why would the Son of God enter the world this way? I mean, at first thought... You have to be saying, couldn't you come up with a better way than this, God? You know how I have to explain this to people in my world? God entered our world because of man's sin. He knew this was the only way to restore man to himself and deal with man's sin. That's the reason. God knows that we need a Savior because our problem is a sin problem. He says it in verse 21. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their what? Sin. As always, this is all about the gospel. Man's separation from God, because we sin by nature and by choice, means that God intentionally took action to remedy the problem of sin against God's righteousness and holiness. Plain and simple. Simple. We need a Savior because we have a sin problem. The virgin conception is all about God's activity on our behalf to deal with our sin, and in doing so, he gets the glory. God gets the glory because it's his plan. It's carried out in his way, and it's carried out at his expense. That's why we sing. That's why we worship, because it's all about God. I'm convinced the reason so many people struggle with the virgin conception in the Christian story is not as much about the miraculous manner in which it happened. I believe it's mostly because our world cannot face the reality of sin in our need of a Savior. I mean, if we try to ignore the reason we need a Savior, a lot of people think the problem will simply go away. But that's like the folks that run up too much on their credit card thinking that the statement never comes in the mail. It's not true. Here's what I mean. If we think that man is good and in no need of a savior, why would Christmas be such a big deal? But maybe I just lay out for you this morning that outside of Christianity, we're taught that man is good. I mean, we're all good at heart, and if that's true, there's really no need of a savior, right? But, but how can that possibly be true? I mean, I mean, look around the world we live in, watch the news, read the internet. I mean, there's terrorism, there's death, there's murder, there's crime, there's pain and heartache, and that doesn't come from people that are good. And so where did the evil come from? Why do we need a Savior? Because man has a sin problem. The world is broken because of sin. You and I are broken because of sin. And we in our world need a Savior. Listen to what Isaiah writes in 59.2. But your iniquities or sin... "...have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear, sin has separated man and God." We need a Savior because there's a separation between God and man. And Romans 6.23 says, "...the wages of the sin is death." So sin brings spiritual death and physical death. We are in need of a Savior. Ah, but God knew that, didn't he? Didn't surprise him. And so the answer by God this morning that we read is he becomes man to save and restore a broken world. Thus, the Christmas story is told, and we get clarity out of confusion. You have to connect the Christmas story to the gospel this Christmas. God, who is just, will justify man through Jesus. This is what we celebrate. The virgin conception shows that God alone is able to save. God can do what man is unable to do, to reconcile this broken relationship with God because of sin. In order to make man acceptable to God without violating God's justice and God's righteousness and God's holiness, he must become man Emmanuel, God, with us. The virgin conception is all about the gospel. So why did God do it this way? Because it was the only way. In order for Christ or God to save us, there had to be a Messiah. And Jesus must become the God-man, 100% God, 100% divine This is the only way our sin could be dealt with without violating the character and person of God. The only way for sinlessness to happen was for God to become man. Romans 8, 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled and I loved our scripture reading this morning Ronnie and I didn't even talk about this i have 2 corinthians 5:21 of the one of the key verses as we think about the virgin conception in the christmas story for our sake he made him meaning jesus to be sin Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The doctrine of the virgin conception is a reminder to you and I that our salvation is supernatural, it is God ordained and God carried out. It reminds us that we're unable to earn our salvation by some type of good work or by earning God's favor through our own merit but that salvation is from God only. Folks, if we could do it, Jesus would have never needed to come. The virgin conception should remind us of God's love and grace. You and I have been favored by God so that he acted on your behalf and mine. The virgin conception is proof of Jesus' divinity. If Jesus was born of a human mother and father, he could not be sinless, and, we would not, and he would not be God. No man and wife could bear a child who was God without God's intervention. Scripture tells us of Jesus' divinity. John chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2.9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And the virgin conception also means that Jesus was fully human. He had a human mother, but not a human father. He would be born in the same way all humans are born, but not conceived the same way humans are conceived. Hebrews 2.17 says, therefore he had to be made like his Brothers, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The virgin conception affirms Jesus' humanity, full humanity, but a sinless human that Jesus was. Therefore, he alone could be the sacrifice for the sin of others. If he had sinned, he would have needed a Savior himself. So what are the implications of all this? Well, a couple that I want us to take note of. One is, it's too easy to sit and to read this Christmas story as a tradition. And if you don't connect it to the gospel, it simply becomes one of those things you do every year, and you miss the meaning. First implication is this. If the virgin conception is not true, the gospel has no hope because Jesus is not the Christ. And we have no Savior, and you and I are still lost in our sin. We're hopeless. All those writings of history that tell us about what happened at Christmas would be a lie, our scripture would be a lie. What would you trust? Because the virgin conception is true, Jesus is divine and worthy of our worship and our devotion. We rightfully worship him at Christmas. It should drive us into a fullness of worship as we sing the songs we sing, as we read the scriptures we read, because Jesus is worthy of our worship. Third, because Jesus has entered our world, there is absolutely nothing else to be done to reconcile man to God. You may rest in your salvation, and therefore, that resting, you will enjoy peace and joy and contentment in your life. Because there's nothing else to be done to reconcile you to God. Fourth, because of the Christmas story, God has declared your worth in his eyes. He has therefore reached out to sinful people and offered forgiveness, which will give us rest for our soul. It should deepen our love and worship of God at Christmas when we understand this. Fifth, the virgin Confession or conception and the humanity of Jesus means he showed us what being a human was supposed to look like. He calls us to live with the same passions and priorities he has. He's our example of how we're to live. Your life is to be modeled after him. He was the real deal. We can trust God and his word is another implication. There are over 61 major prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. Our faith is certain and sure. You must get Jesus right or you get it all wrong at Christmas. And the Christmas story brings clarity to our lives. It brings clarity to our worship. And folks, it brings clarity to our future. We live in faith, not in fear. John 20, 31 is what I want to close with. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John twenty thirty one again. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you will have life in his name. Life eternal life. Why do we need Jesus? Why do we need a Savior? Because man has a sin problem. The way to get to clarity is to understand our problem. And the world's problem is sin, and God alone can deal with that sin. So by sending Christ, he did just that. So, thinking of this truth, The question for you and I is: what is your response? What is your response to the fact that man has a sin problem and Christ is the only remedy for the sin problem? You all have to answer that individually. That's between you and God. But I would challenge you not to make this some kind of a tradition or easy answer, saying, I mentally can agree with that. For the truth of believing is that it sinks deep into our hearts to the place that it changes our affections, our passions, and our devotion to God. That's believing. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning, as we have read these familiar verses, maybe for many here this morning They have spent a a good portion of their life in church, and they're very, very familiar with the things we have read. But might you help us and protect us from making them some kind of a a traditional thing we do and moving them deep into our heart of understanding the reason you sent Christ was because of our sin problem. May that move us in the way we worship this Christmas season. May that move us in the way we live our life. May that move us to live life not in fear but in faith. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that you so loved us that you sent your one and only Son that whoever would believe might have eternal life. And these things you have told us. Amen.